4, verse 13, that's where we'll pick up, and uh, basically we'll see uh, kind of where we left off last last Sunday, and we'll see where you know, Mordecai is very distressed, and he's talking to Esther, they're going back and forth, remember the eunuch that was coming out of the kingdom and going back in the kingdom, and they're talking back and forth over the situation, uh, where Haman's trying to destroy all the Jews, and Mordecai is pleading his case to Esther because they're related, so that the administration uh, thought they thought they were not only protected the king, but they were he was able he was requested to do the thing. Uh, he's really imploring her. He's like, "Look, you know, he's like, this is where you're at. God maybe brought you into this position for this time in order to save His people." And that's what we see here. Verse thirteen says, uh, "Chapter four, verse thirteen says, uh, Mordecai told them to answer Esther." Now do not think in your heart that you will escape from the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you will come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. I will eat no drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise until I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So that's where we really pick up. So it's kind of this uh, dramatic kind of scene going on where she's, you know, contemplating, what shall I go? Shall I go to the king? Because her life's on the line. You know, if the king doesn't want her there, that's the law of the land that not anyone can just enter the court, you know, un- uninvited. willing to be committed she's willing to put her life out there and she's really a very courageous young lady for doing so uh, you know find herself in the middle of this conflict and this turmoil she's going to take this courageous step of faith in order to make herself available and yield her her uh, job uh, so that's where we pick up and that's what we'll see this morning this morning we'll see you know god's salvation really um, we'll see that he saves his people by working behind the scenes see in the book of Esther, you never see the name of God. Um, his name is not mentioned in this book, but you do see his hand at work throughout the whole book. And that's one thing we'll see in Esther this morning, is just how God is working behind the scenes in order to find out this wicked scheme of Haman and actually save his people in this position. Haman is just not down, and we'll see Mordecai uh, lift it up. It's all because of the Lord's will, it's all because of God's providence, because of God's sovereignty, and we'll see that this morning. That's where we pick up. So chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. <coughs> Excuse me. And so it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to the half the kingdom. And so Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared uh, for him. So if any of you seen that movie out there, you know, One Night with the King, it doesn't quite go down exactly like that movie portrays. Uh, she doesn't burst open those doors, and there's this pouring rain, you know, and she's going to answer him with the king. You know, it doesn't really go down like that. She actually has a little more of a plan and a little more of a fight here. And that's really what you see here is uh, she took three days to, to think through what she's going to do. She put a plan together. She thought it through. Uh, she you know, put on a nice dress. She 
respectfully approach the team. We're going to get away from the left lane only if we need to try to get the kill. Um, but the idea is out there in the court where we can be healed. And the team um, invited her in and was favorable to her. Um, but she also prepared a banquet. So she didn't just go into it just like, well, you know, let's do what God does. And, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens. You know, they carefully had a plan. You know, and that's one thing to remember as, as followers of Christ. Yes, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. But at the same time, it is very important to plan. It's important to think things through. God's given us an intellect. He's given us knowledge. He's given us the ability to reason things out and think things through. And that's a great thing. And that doesn't, you know, do away with faith. I mean, faith and, you know, reason can work together. If you think of things through, it's a good thing. You know, and that's what she does here. Because she was planning the banquet. She was going into it not really knowing what the team was going to do. But at the same time, she's like, well, if this is God's will and if I do find favor in the eyes of the king and I get my request, I already have the banquet prepared and I'm going to invite him over there and we're going to go and have this banquet and I got it already thought through and we're going to do this. And that is what she was planning and purposing to do. So she was fasting and praying for three days. But one thing to remember is that prayer is never an excuse for laziness. You know, you can't sit back and just be like, well, you know, I'll pray about it and, and not do anything. And, don't have a job and you're looking for a job and you're like okay you know lord give me a job and you're just praying and then someone comes and asks you well have you got a job yet no well did you fill out any job applications no have you done any interviews have you gone anywhere no i'm just praying <laughs> well maybe you should fill out a job application you know maybe you should go out there and put yourself out there and talk to some people maybe you'll get a job that way you know prayer is never an excuse for for laziness you know there, we do pray there is a time for prayer there is a time for fasting but there's also a time for action, you know. So here we see Esther, we see others praying and fasting for three days. Three days is up. God has revealed to them what to do. And she's going to take that step of faith. She's going to take that action. She's going to be courageous and go before the king. And, and whatever happens, happens. Like she says, if I pray, if I perish. If she doesn't perish, she's got a plan in place. And that's what she has put together here. A banquet prepared for the king and for Haman. And as we learned last time, Haman is that wicked prime minister, so to speak, of the king, and put together that plot to, to destroy the Jews. So it is Esther's plan to, to counteract that, basically. So verse 5 says, then the king said, bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? What shall be granted you? What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will be able to come. So she's inviting him to another banquet uh, tomorrow. So Haman went out that day joyful, but glad hearted. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, knowing, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh, and then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had permitted, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by, by her along with the king. And so you see the pride, right? And then they just lift it up themselves. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, 
Let a gallows be made 50 cubits long. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged there. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet, and the king pleased Haman for he had gallows made. Nice guy. <laughs> this wicked Haman. But you really just see the pride of this man coming forth. Uh, he's really a very proud man. I mean, he's leaving the, the banquet. He's going home, and all he's thinking of doing is, hey, bring my wife, bring my friends. I'm just going to sit back and brag about all I have, all my riches, all my children, all my job promotions and my titles and, and all the rank and everything I have, respective privileges. You know, only I am invited to go to this meeting. I'm going to hang myself. And you just see the pride lifting up this man and blinding him a little bit, too, because he doesn't even have a clue about what's going on. He doesn't have a clue that Esther's not on his side. He's all about thinking that he's doing right. But even despite all of his riches, you see that this man is really a, a miserable man. I mean, it's pretty clear in the scriptures that he's, he's miserable. He even says it. He's like, even though I have all this stuff, even though I have this job, even though I have this rank, this privilege, this title, and everything, he's like, I'm just miserable just, and that's the way of the world. I mean, it really is. Haman's really, a, like we talked last week, really, a, you know, the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh, and this is really just how it is in the world, because the world is always trying to replace God with people, relationships, right? I mean, we have that in us that we want to have that relationship with God, and uh, you need me or God, but I don't need your God, you know, like they're all deep down needs and desires. And when we don't worship and serve the true and living God, we always try to replace him with something else. And it'll be a thing, a relationship, whatever it may be. Money, power, anything. Whatever you call it, a vehicle, a house, a station. We're always trying to replace God with something. And it just never works. You're never satisfied. I mean, even like Haman here, he's like, I got everything. Everything that could be had at that time in the world, even second to the king. I mean, the ruling empire of the world at that time, he was number two in command. I mean, what what more could you ask for other than taking over the kingdom, right? <laughs> at least that was thought of back then, right? He's number two. You know, he had it all. He had all these kids, he had a wife, he had all these friends and, and prizes, and the man's just miserable. But that's how it is in the world. You know, you have all these people out there running around trying to get all this stuff, get all these things. what they need. That's the truth. It doesn't matter about all these things of the world. Worldly things will never satisfy. You know, and just like women, they believe they're in control, and they're more concerned about what men think rather than really what God thinks. You know, and you see that Haman here, he's more concerned about what Mordecai thinks. You know, he wants Mordecai to, you know, bake and do all, you know, oh, this one's Haman over here, you know, following him and making a powerful man out of him. That's what, that's what he wants. He wanted to look good in Mordecai's eyes. He wanted to look good in all these other people's eyes. He wanted to more concerned about what men think than what God thinks. And we don't ever want to get caught in that trap. We want to always be more concerned about what the Lord thinks than what men think. Because it's clear in the scriptures that the fear of man is a snare. It'll hold you back. It'll keep you captive. It'll prevent you from doing what God wants you to do. I can't do that for the Lord. Well, there's me. Can't say that. an evil thing, too. I mean, pride is a very tricky thing. Uh, you know, you, you just 
with it up here. Yeah, look at everything I got. Look at everything I got. I'm trying to take credit for it. She's the one that did it, or she's the one that confessed. It really ain't up to the scriptures that all good things come from God. And it says in James 1, 16 and 17, it says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So we know every good thing comes from God. You know, you're sitting there thinking, well, you didn't do it, you did it. But really, it all comes from God. You know, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not, now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know how true that is. Everything we have is coming come from God. Everything. You know, I was teaching in the children this one time, and I showed that scripture to to the class, and one of the kids like, "Well, you know, not everything comes from God." And I was like, "Well, oh really?" He goes, "Well, yeah." Well, where'd you where'd you get your body? He goes, "I got it from my mom." <laughs> like he knew he was born from his mom. Okay, I was like, "Well, where'd your mom get her body?" Well, he got it. She got her body from, from her mom, you know. And I was like, well, where'd she get the, her body? You know, and it, all the way back, they, I brought them all the way back to, to Eve, <laughs> you know, Adam and Eve. And I was like, well, where'd they get their body? He's like, well, I get it all from God. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it all goes back to the Lord. Everything, everything comes from God. We have our bodies from God. Our bills come from God. Our health is from God. Whatever possessions, whatever jobs, whatever money you have, it all comes from God. You can't argue with it. I mean, it's just the truth, you know. And that's the thing that the world doesn't realize is that God loves them so much that even in their sinful state, He's still allowing them to be blessed. Just like it says in Scripture, the rain goes on the wicked just like it does. You know, just pour on the earth, grow the place, and we're righteous. You know, everything comes from God, and that's why He also has the right to tell us what to do with our stuff or what to do with our lives. And He's the only one that says that. That's why we recently read his word, and that's why we seek his truth in order to, to know how to live. What do I do with my life? What is the right thing to do with my life? Do I fill it with chemicals and toxins and, and get drunk and do whatever, sleep around? Or what should I do with these other things? You know, so God's always said, what should I do? Well, God's the only one that has a right to tell you what you can do. Is the right thing to do with this? Is the right thing to do with your body? Do the wrong thing with your body. Is the right thing to do with your money? Do the wrong thing with your money. Is the right thing to do with your assets? Do the wrong thing with your really it's all his you can't take any of it with you you came into this world naked you're going to leave this world naked you ain't going to bring nothing with you and even your body's going to die you're going to get a new body so really absolutely nothing you're going to leave this world with you're going to except your soul and then you'll get all new stuff when you get to heaven thank god for that but being lifted up in pride as if you know we did it we got it all and, and, and it's ours and we can do whatever we want that's just wrong we don't want to get caught in that trap ourselves in the sight of the Lord and uh, recognize that this is our stuff and it's not ours. Uh, you know, and also too, just we have to recognize that we need to get saved and that, that we know that we need to repent and repent. Don't get caught up in pride. Don't get caught up in that kind of stuff. You know, and that's pretty much what that that talks about here too. In chapter six, we're gonna see the story picks up uh, at nine. So it says uh, that night the king could not sleep. The one was commanded to bring the books of the records of the Chronicles, and they were, they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Paris, the two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on, on King Ahasuerus. And then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on, on Mordecai for this? So if you remember last, last time, uh, we were teaching about the, 
Mordecai had made the king aware of these these two meetings and gave him his order of arrest and that's how it ended up happening. But he was never rewarded for it. So here's the king is still asleep and he's asking for these records to be read and that's when he gets, you know, um, gets reminded that, that yeah, he was ordered to assassination because he killed Mordecai. So he's like, well, what, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done. So the king said, well, who's in the court? And so he recognized someone standing out in the court. So he says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights in hanging? And here we really see this blindness that pride brings to, to an individual. And Haman just has no clue what's going on. Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> He's like, hey, I'm the greatest guy around. And who, who would he want to honor other than, than me? So Haman answered, you know, thinking of himself, this is what the king wants to do for me. So Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has ordered. And a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes. And he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gates. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the, house and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And afterward Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and, and crying and weeping, you know, um, and with his head covered with all his shame. So when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his sons everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, then you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which was to overflow. And so here we really get insight into just how God is working behind the scenes um, to save his people, really. And it's fascinating. I mean, the king can't sleep. So he's sitting there, you know, awake all night, has this trouble, trouble in going to sleep. So he's like, well, you know, go and get the, the, the records, you know, and just read those to me, you know, and then, uh, you know, how much more boring could it get than reading the government official records? You know, they'll probably just make me fall asleep and not pay attention, you know. And it just so happens that they read this record or this account of Mordecai and his helping the king avoid this assassination plot. You know, and you also see uh, the fact that Mordecai wasn't rewarded immediately for this come into play as well. You know, and it's just cool to see how God is working behind the scenes and working all this out, even to the point where Esther didn't even address really the issue that first banquet. She said, we'll come back another day. Because you can kind of wonder, well, why didn't you bring up the issue with Haman right there at that first banquet? You know, why come back another day? I mean, we didn't really get insight into that, but it could possibly have been that that's just how God revealed it to her. And Esther might not have known exactly why, but God knew what he was going to do with the king. As long as he's sleeping, hear this record account, you know, or hear this uh, record read to him at night. That's why he could be reminded of Mordecai, you know. And it's just, you see God working behind the scenes and just working it all out. You know, and that's why we really just, in our lives, we really need to trust the Lord in this. Uh, because 
so many times in our own life, we can look at situations or we can look at things that God allows, and we can just be like, well, why would God allow that? Why would God make this certain thing happen? Why would God not prevent this? Because we can start to question God's design. To us, it doesn't make sense, but to God, it makes total sense. Um, and that's why we have to trust him and know that he knows more than we know. He's much more wiser than we are, and he has a plan and a purpose for us. And if it's the scriptures, you know, his ways aren't our ways, and our ways aren't his ways. And he's much more higher, much more aware. And that's why we have to trust him. Uh, and we don't always understand these things. I mean, Mordecai, for example, he probably wondered why he didn't get rewarded way back then. I mean, it was a lot of time had passed since he had prevented that assassination plot, and he didn't get any kind of reward. I mean, imagine today if, you know, someone tried to assassinate the president, you know, and someone, you know, alerted him to the, the assassin and said, hey, he's over there, and they were saved. I mean, it would be like the next day. <laughs> it would be, be all over the television. It would be all over the news, and the president would be given a medal or an award or something, you know, and, hey, you know, thanks for saving my life. Here's Mordecai saving the king, and they did absolutely nothing. They didn't even do a single thing. I mean, you could probably be sitting there like Mordecai, like, well, what is going on here, you know? Why did I even do that? <laughs> Maybe I should have let this go. You know, I mean, we can get in, into those uh, mindsets ourselves sometimes. You know, maybe we're at work and we're working hard and, and someone else gets complacent. You know, why? Why didn't I get fired? Why did I get fired? You know, I worked harder than they. You know, or maybe, uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. You know, you can get into different things, different events happen in your life. And you're like, why that? You know, why didn't this happen? You know, and it can get wrapped up in there. But the key is here to just trust God and know that, you know, I wasn't in sin. I didn't do anything foolish, you know, and, and this just happened. And so there must be a reward, and I'm going to trust him in this, and he's going to make good of this situation, you know. But that's one thing you always have to do as well, too. You have to kind of take an account, like, did I mess this up, or did I cause problems? You know, did I bring it upon myself? But if we didn't, we know it's from God, and we'll be good, and God will work it out. And we, we see how quickly things can turn uh, for God's children. Because remember, Haman's the one trying to wipe them all out. He's trying to kill Mordecai and kill all the people. And here we see God working on behalf of Mordecai uh, behind the scenes. And, and really his tables are being turned on Mordecai here pretty quick. In verse 13, we actually see that God almost gave Mordecai a chance to get out of this. You know, if you remember verse 13, when he was talking with his wife and he was talking with his friends, and they they had some good insight. You know, he says his, his wise men and his wife said, I said to him, if Mordecai before me has begun to fall and is of Jewish descent, you're not going to prevail against him. You know, so you can kind of look at this in a way where he's really kind of getting warned. You know, hey, Haman, you might not want to keep pursuing this. You might want to maybe stop what you're doing. You might want to turn around and repent and change and, and not go down this path of trying to kill Mordecai and trying to kill all the Jews. It doesn't seem to be working out too well for you. Uh, you know, you're trying to get Mordecai. You built those big things, and, and here the king has you floating around and, and say, hey, this is the greatest guy in the kingdom right here. And he's like, you know kind of, you know, you can kind of see here the Lord's almost giving him a way out. Like, well, you might want to second guess what you did rather than doing this. And really he's doing that for him here. And I mean, they're not innocent by any means either, but I mean, they certainly had some good insight. And it's good to have some people around you like that sometimes. Good to have wise, wise friends and people around you that'll, you know, warn you. Sometimes they can see some things you can't. Sometimes we get so caught up in our own little world, it's hard to really see. Um, but here his wife and friends are like, look, you're not winning. You might want to quit. They had kind of a chance, though, but in the middle of it all, they came and rushed him away, and he's off to the second banquet, and that's where we'll, we'll pick up there. Verse chapter 7, verse 1, it says, So the king and Haman 
went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. That's just kind of a plain old kind of, well, you know, what would you like? I'll give it to you. We're not really going to give her half the kingdom if she asks for it, but, you know, kind of a nice, polite way of saying, hey, what's your request? I'm the king, and I need to make something happen. But verse 3, then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's life. So the, so the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy of this wicked Haman. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Could you imagine being at that dinner with Haman? Like, whoa, hey, you know. <laughs> the guy was so blind, he had no clue what was even going on. He thought he was in their favor. And here Esther turns everything around. It's this wicked man right there. You know, so Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther just pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Now remember earlier, the king has a tremendous temper. I mean, he's just a very wrathful, angry man, um, and Haman knows it. But when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where, where Esther was. And then the king said, will you also assault the queen? Well, I'm in the house, so this ain't working out great often. You know, so you can remember they're eating around the table, they're all laying on the ground. So this guy had like fallen on her. So he's angry and he leaves and gets soldiers basically. And he comes back and what he finds is Haman on top of his wife. <laughs> it couldn't really get any worse for this guy. So he's, <laughs> well, actually, it does get worse. Then the king said to him, then the king said, hang him. Uh, or let's, that's a little bit shorter. Uh, I lost my place. And then the king said, will you also assault the queen while I'm in the house? And as the, as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And now Harbinah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, he put good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hang Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath subsided. You know, so it didn't work out too well for Haman. He had this big plan. He's like, I'm going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill the Jews. And he got the king to go along with it. And he got it all worked out, right? And he's just flipping up and fire. Like, I'm the number two man. I got all this money. I got all this power, you know. And he's like, I'm going to get it done. Let me get, you know, he's like, I'm going to get these guys killed. And I'm going to get all their money. And his life's going to be changed. And it's just an awesome to see how God is just working behind the scenes to not only protect Mordecai, but protect all of his people. And he did it all through just a, a Jewish girl getting picked in order to be the, the next queen of the kingdom. Um, and it's just amazing to see how God worked that all out. And all the, it was over years. God knew down the road that this event was going to happen. And God had already been planning years ahead of time. You know, I mean, yeah, Esther and Mordecai were not in the will of God, but they were out of the will of God. They weren't perfect. And they weren't in a perfect situation either. They weren't in the ideal situation. You know, and that's encouragement for us because we aren't perfect either. We're not always in ideal situations, but it's encouraging for us to know that God can use us even in those times, even in those situations, just like he's using Esther and Mordecai here 
you're out of the world and in a bad situation, but God still orchestrated it to where you knew where they were, you allowed this to happen, and he's like, I'm going to make good on it. And, and he's going to get you guys, he uses us here, he uses Mordecai and what he's been doing about the downfall, and if you look at Naaman, Naaman thought, hey, no, I'm in Mordecai, I don't need to go to Naaman, but it ends up landing him in, in that job. But how quickly things can turn when God is on your behalf. And that's something that should be encouraging for all of us, that we are the children of God, we are the sons and daughters of God, and he's on our side. And just like it says in Scripture, he's for us, who can be against us? You know, God's already won the battle, he's won the victory, I mean, it's just about serving him and then for him. And in the end, God wins, and we're on his side, and that's just an awesome thing to know and to encourage ourselves with. And when it gets hard, when hard times come, when things happen, we can always remind ourselves of that. God has already won, paid the price on the cross, saved, and we're going to raise him in heaven, and we're going to be good people. You know, and it's interesting, too, just how the world views things so differently. Like Haman thought, hey, we're going we're gonna to get these guys. You know, and Haman's on Haman's side, and the Lord's side, they're like, we're going to win, we're going to kill them all, you know. And on our side, we're like, no, God's already won, and we're going to win this whole thing. Uh, you know, you even think of Joseph, like when you look back at Joseph's life. Going back to Genesis, uh, if you remember the story of Joseph, he was a young boy, you know, he had the multicolored coat, and his dad favored him, and all the other sons, you know, that were jealous of him, so they got the bright idea, well, let's sell him as slaves, you know, let's sell him as a slave to the Phasians, you know, and they, and they sent him off, you know, as a young boy, you know, they faked his death, they covered that coat in blood, and they sold him into a trader, they let Naaman pay his debt, they freed Joseph, Joseph was gone. Rebuild young Joseph up, but uh, Egypt was a slave, and if you know the story, he winds up getting thrown in jail, and then he ends up becoming the number two man in all of Egypt. You know, and that's the cool thing about the story is that he used to know in Egypt that Joseph was really the prime minister of Egypt at that time, second to Pharaoh, and God orchestrated where these brothers of his that sold him into slavery, they had to come down to Egypt to buy food in order to survive from the, the famine that was going on. And who they had to stand before in order to ask for food was their own brother that sold them into slavery, you know. And the cool thing about that story is that they, you know, they were in such a bad spot. I mean, Joseph could have done anything, and he was the one in charge. He was the one in command. He had all the cards. You know, he had all the power. He had all the food. He had all the money. And uh, they were really at his will. But you got to love what he said and the mercy that he had for him. You know, you can read in Genesis 5.20, he says, to his brothers, you know, he's standing up for his brothers. And he's like, look, you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to, to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You know, and how true that is, that the world thinks it's going to be evil, that they think it's just, you know, we're going to get them. You know, we're going to, you know, just like Haman, we're going to kill these guys and we're going to get them and, and we're going to win. You know, the world comes at it for evil. They, they, they put it forth for evil. But God intends it for good. You know, there is free will. God allows certain things to happen, and God intends these things for good. He can turn things around. He can make things for good. So if you follow Joseph's life, if you follow Mordecai's life, it's great. You know, when God's on your side, what can't be against you, uh, and it's a good thing. So that should encourage all of us that no matter what situation you may find yourself in, no matter what may be going on or, or, or what trouble you may find yourself in, just know, uh, we're not perfect, we're not always in perfect situations, but God can always work these things out. He's for us, not against us, it's his plan for us, as long as we're walking with him and in his word and his plan with him, God will work all these things out. And is that encouraging for you? I know it's encouraging for me, uh, so it's a good thing.
when we pick back up uh, chapter 8, so we see Haman is hanging now. He's on the gallows. He's, he's done. So now the question is, well, well, what do we do now? So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to him. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Mordecai brought into the palace at this point. He's given the ring, and he's given Haman everything that was Haman. He's now Mordecai. Now Esther spoke again to the king, verse 3, and fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleased in your eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. Who are in all the king's provinces? For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can, re- no one can revoke. You know, and that's, that's kind of one of the interesting things about the Medo-Persian Empire that we know as Assyria is that the way they did law was once a law was written, you couldn't change it. Even the kings couldn't change it. So if you please me, you know, change it. He's like, well, I can't change it. He's like, but what I can do is I can let you write another decree in order to counteract it. And then that's basically what he's trying to do. You know, we saw Daniel got caught up in this too. Like when you, when you read the book of Daniel, you know, Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. And it was really because there was a group of men that tricked the king into writing a law that they knew would get Daniel into trouble. And when the king found out he had been tricked, he couldn't change the law. He had to throw Daniel in that lion's den no matter what because, unfortunately, even though he was the king, he couldn't go back on what was written in the law. That's why when you see, when you read that story of Daniel, the king couldn't even sleep that night. He's like, well, I'm not going to lie down with Daniel and throw him in the lion's den. And then in the morning, they ran down to him, and he's like, Daniel, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm still alive. And he's like, oh, good. So they pulled Daniel out, and then they threw that group of men in there. They had him write the law, and then they all got him into trouble. You know, And that's what, that's what was happening. It's like this Medo-Persian Empire, once they write a law, that's it. And then you can't change it. So he's basically telling them, I wrote the law, but what we can do is we can write another one in order to counteract it. And that's exactly what they did. So the king's scribes, verse 9, they were called at that time in the third month, which is the month this is in, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded. To the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes of the provinces, the women of the Ethiopians, 127 provinces in all, for every province in Sanskrit, for every people in Roman language, and for the Persian and their ancestral language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on Royal, horse, royal horses bred from swift steeds. Now by these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy and kill and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published to all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. 
So the idea was, okay, I can't stop the hanging put in place, which was to tell everybody to attempt to move and kill the Jews. They both failed. So what he did was he basically gave the Jews a heads up. He's like, look, this is coming, and in fact, you have the authority to defend yourself. Get together, defend yourself, and fight each other. That's basically what was put together for the Jews. So verse 14, the couriers rode on royal horses and went out hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad, and the Jews had light and gladness, joy in it. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, and the Jews had joy and gladness, feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, that's an interesting statement right there, that, verse, that last verse there. It's why I like to spend a little time on it because it's, it kind of brings up an interesting piece. So here they are. Um, you know, rather than change that law, they wrote this new decree for self-defense. And then we see as a result of this, you know, the people really seeing the favor of God on the Jews, that many of the people of the land became Jews. And then we're given the reason why it was because of fear. Because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, it's possible that this conversion came, came place just, it was a false conversion. It could just be, well, they see the Jews are on the winning team and we want to be on the winning team too. So, hey, we're going to join you, don't hurt us. <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. It could have been something like that. Uh, it could have been a pos- it could possibly have been a genuine conversion. It could have actually been people believing and putting their faith in the true and living God and getting saved, uh, just like Abraham. You know, Abraham the scriptures he believed God and he was counting his righteousness and it was possible for people to get saved in the Old Testament and that's how they got saved was by believing what they knew at that time in the true and living God so it could have very very well been that this was a a genuine conversion a genuine saving faith because they did see God was clearly on the side of the Jews others even recognized that like we just talked a minute ago Naaman's wife and friends they recognized it they're like look if we're Mordecai's a Jew and we're going against him we're going to fail you know God's on the side of the Jews so it could have been a false conversion. It's possible. I mean, we're not really given exact insight. It could have been a genuine conversion, though, too. Uh, but really, the truth of the statement here is that salvation can come through fear. You know, and, that, and I find that interesting, and it's kind of near and dear to my heart, because that's really how I got saved. And I know it's how others have gotten saved, too. Uh, you know, when it comes to sharing the gospel, going out there and trying to reach people uh, for the Lord, uh, yeah, we seek the truth and love. And uh, I always present it first. I'm like, hey, God loves you. You know, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We've made mistakes. You know, Jesus died on that cross to pay for our sins, to take the punishment on himself so that we don't have to take that punishment. And we can live with him in heaven forever, you know, and we can share that truth with him. And he's like, well, how do you know? Well, he died on the third day. He rose from the dead, you know, and proven that he's the son of God, proven that he died for people's sins, proven that he has the power over life and death, that he raised himself and he already rules. And that's the hope that we have in heaven. You know, and you can share that gospel with people, you know, and that's a good thing. But we shouldn't also stray away from sharing the whole truth. I mean, questions do come up, and you're like, well, you know, if they ask you, you're sitting there talking to them, well, what happens if I, I don't believe in God? Well, then you're going to go to hell. <laughs> well, what's hell? Well, Scripture refers to that as a place of eternal punishment. And you're like, ooh, I don't like that. You know, and we, we shouldn't be afraid to, to share that truth. Because sometimes that fear of hell is what will ultimately lead someone to salvation. You know, I mean, uh, I've shared my gospel story or my uh, 
salvation story before, and a big part of my salvation was uh, it wasn't the love of God that really led me to, to get into faith. It was really the fear that I had of death and dying and one day not be able to come back and actually talk to this guy, because uh, I had enough common sense and reasoning that that could be false and I wouldn't do it, but it doesn't take much to look at life and be like, you know, I was born, and I see everybody dying, and I'm, I don't know where they're going after that, and all I know is that when they do die, they don't come back. <laughs> Seems to be a pretty permanent place, wherever they go, and I remember early on when in my teenage years, I came to that conclusion, I was like, well, I need to figure this out, and uh, during my high school days, I did spend a lot of time whenever I had to do a class project, uh, like a research project or something, I would, I would generally pick a world religion, and I would try to figure out exactly what was going on, I would pick Buddhism, I would pick Hinduism, I was doing all these things, I was raised Catholic, so I thought I already knew everything about Buddhism, uh, so I was searching, and I was trying to figure it out, and I'd go to the restroom, and what happened, and I was trying to figure it all out, and I said I would go, I ended up getting saved, and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for a number of reasons, but it wasn't because I realized he loved me, it was because I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I was getting the sinner foot beaten by these wicked thieves I was dealing, and I was afraid of death, I was really afraid of dying, because I didn't know what was coming, I knew I was going there, I knew it was going to happen, because I had already seen a bunch of my buddies die, uh, see the wife die, they were living, they were dead and gone for some reason, they had died in Palestine, they were just coming back, I've seen family members die in Palestine, and I was fine with that. I knew my time was coming, but that fear was there, and that fear was real, and that fear was genuinely leading me to God, and that's up to this thing with the Protestants, you know, I know a big thing in the news recently was the Pope basically saying there is no God, anybody heard, anybody heard that one, there's that big controversy right there, you know, and I don't even know why it's a controversy, if you know the Catholic Church's statement on things is their statement of faith, they have, that's all they believe, that anyway, when you look at purgatory and, and uh, things like this, you know, but when the Pope's out there saying there's no hell, telling you, there's many other groups out there that say there's no such thing as hell. Uh, but the truth is there is, you know, and the truth is that people can be saved uh, through fear, just like we see here in the scripture. We see fear, but these people got saved, you know, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on hell. I mean, if you can really get a, a chance to spend time on that or read a scripture, I wouldn't spend much more time on that. But just know the main, main thing about hell is that it is eternal and it is punishment. And one thing I did want to address is that people don't like that idea. You know, it says in the end times people aren't going to endure sound doctrine. One thing they don't like, one thing is sound doctrine, is that there is a hell. And one thing they don't want to endure is, is that fear. They want to try to come up with something after that. I was hoping to bring up awareness to that. There's very succinct things they try to put in place and try to deal with this trouble that they find themselves in. But I think everyone has that same sense that I had in my mind try to deal with it in various ways and we have to see throughout the world as they've come up with clever ways of dealing with it um, because people don't like that idea they don't like the idea of eternal punishment it doesn't doesn't help them to enjoy their life it doesn't help them to enjoy the sin they're involved in so they've come up with ways to do away with it you know uh, people like basically what they do is they lie to themselves they deceive themselves and they believe what they want to believe and whatever teachers come up and they give them these tricks on the ears and and they like it and one of the things they've come up with in order to do away with this, in order to help them overcome this fear of theirs and help them to calm themselves down, is universalism. You ever heard of universalism? Where they believe that everybody will get to heaven. And they'll say, well, there's no, you know, there's maybe there's a hell, but nobody's going. Everybody's going to get saved in the end. In the end, God's going to win, and 
they're doing there is basically they're doing what the, the punishment is for. So now everybody's going to get saved, but nobody's going to get punished. So that makes me feel better. I'm, I'm not going to get punished for my sins at all. So I can keep living my life the way I want to believe in Jesus for me. And that's fine. Or purgatory. Purgatory is another one. Purgatory is a, a way of allowing for punishment, but it's not eternal. And we're still going to do it. Uh, just kind of up from what the justice aspect of it. Yes, people will get punished for their bad deeds, but they'll get let out after a little while, and then, and then they'll, they'll go to heaven, and everything will be okay. We'll all get handled. And so purgatory is kind of one way they deal with it. Catholics are big on purgatory. Uh, most Catholics might not even be fully aware of it, but if you look at their Catholic statement of faith, they do believe in purgatory. Annihilationism, that's another one. Have you heard of annihilationism? Annihilationism is another way people will deal with this. They'll say, well, there's no punishment, so we just get annihilated. We cease to exist, essentially. Um, it is eternal because we cease to exist forever. Uh, but there's no punishment, so we basically get out of the punishment aspect. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a big one, isn't it? We talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll come to you and say, well, everybody goes to heaven that wants to go to heaven. And those that don't want to go to heaven, they just get annihilated. They just get destroyed. And they cease to exist forever. Get out of the punishment aspect. So it makes the Jehovah's Witnesses feel good because, well, if I make it to heaven, then I'm in it. And if I don't, well, I'm not going to get punished anymore. <laughs> I'll just keep going. And that's how they look at that. Another one's reincarnation. Reincarnation is big in Eastern religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, reincarnation. Uh, even, even here in America, they call it New Age. But really, it's just Eastern religion is kind of repackaged. And it makes it look a little nicer, a little new age. Um, they still do the yoga. They still do the chanting and the meditation and all those things. But they just call it a little different thing. So it's just things change with incarnationism. Um, but reincarnation is one way they try to deal with this too as well. Um, there's a punishment aspect to it because nobody wants to be reincarnated in the way of heaven. Because if you get reincarnated, it's a form of punishment. And then they try to live better in order to not get reincarnated so they can go to on this way to heaven, but you don't want to reincarnate while you're here. And that's what they hope to lead in, in their system. But reincarnation to them is, is a form of punishment, um, but it's not eternal, so they deal with that that way. Yeah, we'll get punished, but it's not eternal. Kind of like purgatory, purgatory as well, kind of another way to think of purgatory, except they come back. Um, and that's one of the ways you see the caste system developing that way in India and other places. Because if you die committed a whole bunch of bad deeds, when you come back, you're going to be in a worse shape, and you're going to get put into a lower caste system where you live a real miserable life, and you have to try to work your way back up again in order to get out. But if you lived your life in such a way, and you only commit a few bad deeds, you know, you'll come back as like a king or some kind of ruler or whatever, you know, and, and you'll be doing well. Um, but you still got to kind of prove yourself in order to reach this nirvana or, or enlightenment state. So they come up with all kinds of things. Some of you, I'm sure, are aware of these different ways they try to address this. Some of you, I'm sure, maybe this is the first time you've heard of it. But universalism, purgatory, annihilationism, reincarnation, it's all ways that they come up with to try to deal, deal with the fear of the unknown, what's going to happen when they die and leave this world, or to deal with the fear of hell itself. And they come to the knowledge of it. So it's one of those. Um, some of the aspects of it, punishment aspects of it, they try to deal with it this way. Um, really... How do they come up with this? How do they know these are even true? It's really just man's words. 
and do research like I've done the research and look in all these various ways they try to deal with death and the afterlife uh, I think man's worse it's just them all thinking around sitting around trying to come up with ideas in order to comfort themselves and make themselves feel better or make others feel better but you and I uh, we're not concerned about what man thinks we're concerned about what God thinks and that's what we want to know what is the truth what is really going to happen when I leave here what is really going to happen when we when we go to the afterlife when I go forth and the scripture teaches that hell is a real place you know you and I we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ we've been saved we've been born again we don't have to fear hell that fear is gone we no longer have to fear hell we no longer fear our punishment Jesus took that punishment that we were going to take in hell. He took it upon himself. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what he did for us is that we don't have to fear that. Our hope and our future is in heaven. Our punishment has been taken care of. We are now seen as righteous, and we are entered into heaven the moment we die. The saints entered in and out are going to be in heaven with nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. We're just looking forward to paradise and, and heaven and all the good things that come with it and spending eternity with God. But for those that have rejected Jesus Christ in the flesh, and those that reject the gospel, I mean, there is a hell that they're, they're going to be looking forward to, and it is real. It's a real place, and it exists. It was created for Satan and his angels. God never intended man to go there, but it is, it is a real place, and due to the fall, it is ended up that some men and some women will go there. They will be there. Now, Jesus even teaches this truth as well. Jesus talked more about hell than what he did about heaven. I mean, I know I was surprised the first time I learned that, but it's true. He came and warned people more than he did the really encouragement about heaven. He was like, hey, this is real. You know, even a lot of the insight that we get into hell in regards to what it is 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 through Jesus and his teachings. The Old Testament speaks about it, but most of the teachings have really bring clarity to exactly what it is and what is the extent of its nature is through the teachings of Jesus. So to reject that there is a hell is really to reject the clear teaching of Scripture and to reject Jesus Christ himself because he's the one that taught most on it and and clarified it most. So it is real. It is a real place. And there is punishment. And there is eternal. And the truth is that those that aren't saved and those that aren't born again should have a genuine fear of it. Now, the hope is that, you know, those living in the world, if they knew this, that they would come to repentance, that they would get saved. You know, and that's really what it is. And that's why we should share this truth with them. And the, But we share the truth in love. We don't do it in anger. You know, so... Yeah, you come to him and you tell him, hey, yeah, Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. You can go to heaven. But if you want to get into it, you can share the truth, too. Say, hey, yeah, and if you don't, there is a hell. There is, there is an eternal punishment that will take place. And there's consequences for that. I want you to avoid that if, <laughs> if you want to go to heaven, right? You know, and that's really what we're, we're doing in sharing that truth and love is giving them the opportunity to repent and be saved from it. Because that's really what we're saved from is, is from that uh, eternal state of punishment. Now, you don't do it in anger. You know, you, I highly recommend you don't go out in the community and say, you know, if you're going to go to hell if you quit, you know, if you don't stop doing that, you know, or you go to your family members, you know, if you don't stop doing that, you're going to hell right now, buddy, you know, that's not going to bring about any good results, uh, you know, so avoid that. You share the truth in love, you know, and you're, you, hell is a reality, hell is a truth, but you share it in love and you use the hope for other reasons is that hell is real. Now, the key is, too, once they're saved, though, they're not to stay there. They're not to stay in this state of fear. You know, they're not to stay in this state of, well, you know, you know, fearing God or whatever. You know, hopefully at some point through the learning of the word and the teaching of the word and spending time with Jesus, they're going to understand that, yeah, God loves 
God saved him because he loved him. God saved him because he was faithful and merciful to him. And he has a plan for him and a future and a hope. And, and that's what happened with me. And when I got saved, it was confusing. But it was over time of coming to the Lord and coming to the scriptures and spending time in church and learning and growing that I understood why. You know, God does love me. You know, died for me even while I was still a sinner. You know, and I came to that understanding. I came to that conclusion, you know. And, and it was over time that I started to realize that, yeah, God loves me unconditionally and he's gracious and he's merciful and, and praise God for that. You know, so you don't stay in that state of fear after you get saved. Um, you know, and that's the hope. It's like, like there's nothing wrong with getting saved to that fear. Um, but you definitely don't want to stay there. You know, and I would say it's the wisest thing in order to get saved is uh, to avoid that. I mean, I've ran into people that told the reason that they did get saved is just that. I had a guy back in California one time even tell me, he said, it was the fact that he learned about hell and he learned that it was a reality that he got saved. And he was able to avoid those situations. And that's a good thing. That's a very wise man. And it's like, yeah, that fear led him to salvation. And then he started coming to church and, and learning and growing, and that's how it worked. So don't be afraid to share the truth, you know, even if it's an uncomfortable truth. Like, like hell sometimes is an uncomfortable truth. And like I said, I'm not going to get into all the details of, of that. Um, but I just want you to be aware that it's true that people come up and could try to counter me in universalism and purgatory and annihilation and all these things. Um, you encounter me too. And it's just, it's just good to be aware of that when you are talking to people out there, um, to be able to deal with that. Um, but don't be afraid to share the truth that it is real. That, that it is something to that to fear, and hopefully that fear should lead them to repentance and salvation. You know, so don't be afraid to share that. Uh, don't be afraid to share that truth in love. Um, God puts it on your heart to do so, because you never know. Someone might just get saved, and that would be a good thing. Whether it's through fear, whether it's through love, we want to see people get saved, and that's important. Because like we saw here, Steve got saved. Why did they get saved? It was through fear, and that's a good thing that they had. So. We'll move on. We'll, we'll end here, chapter 9. Uh, now, verse 1, Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but the opposite occurred. In that, the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the province of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people and all the officials of the provinces. The satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. But Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, Verse 10, they killed all the, the ten sons of Haman. I'm not going to try to pronounce all those names. The ten, ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. They killed, but they did not lay a hand on the ten sons. And on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you, or what is your further request? It shall be done. Verse 13, then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tonight, according to the Jewish decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Shushan, uh, but they did not lay a hand on the ten sons. 
the remainder of the Jews and the king's fathers gathered together and protected their lives and had rest from their enemies until 25,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the king. And this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made a day of feasting and gathering. So we see that they fulfilled the decree. The decree was sent out to defend themselves, to fight against those that wanted to destroy them, and they did exactly that. And God was on their side. They won the victories. They won the battles. And we see that they conquered the enemies. Now, verse 18 is where we uh, get introduced to this Feast of Kids. But as a result of this victory, they actually celebrated a feast, and then they made this law, basically, that would be celebrated forever uh, for the rest of Jewish history. Um, so verse 18, but the Jews who were at feasting had assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who... Or therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. And as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadash, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast spirits, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther became, came before the king, he commanded by a letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should be turned on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Um, so basically, Pur means lot, and then the I-N is like a plural, and so it means lot. So it's like the Feast of Lots is, is what the, the name Purim means. So that's what that means, the Feast of Lots. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, did the Jews establish and impose it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not, be, should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. When Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim, and Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, the 127 provinces of King Ahasuerus, words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim as they had planned for them. And as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and remembrance. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written down. So that's the, the history of the Feast of Purim. That's uh, what it's all about. It's a two-day festival. It's actually celebrated to this day. The, the Jews still celebrate the Feast of Purim. Um, it's changed a little bit. It's, uh, it's not exactly as we do here now. I mean, we're still there two days, but it's, uh, it's where we kind of celebrate like Halloween. So the little kids will dress up, and the little girls will dress up like Queen Esther, you know, and the boys will, you know, dress up. And then uh, sometimes they'll reenact the story of, uh, of the Age of Dread with Queen Esther and, and Mordecai and Haman and the king and stuff. You know, they'll, they'll reenact that. Um, and then they, they share treats. They cookies and things and stuff, you know, so it's still celebrated to this day, uh, just like we read here in the scripture. Um, this is not a festival that was commanded by the law of Moses, um, but 
this is one that was imposed upon themselves. They remember this time when God saved them uh, from demons and from his wicked plan of killing the Jews. But the way it's described there in John's salvation uh, through the apostles. So Purim is really the first and, and the only real you know, additional festival other than what's described in the law of God. In chapter 10, and King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai, which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? But Mordecai the Jew was the second to the king Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, speaking good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Quite the story. Quite the, quite the letter. Uh, and again, God's name is never mentioned throughout the book, but you certainly see God's hand throughout the entire book. And it's clear to see just how God is for us and can be against us. Uh, and just like Esther and Mordecai uh, were up against Haman, Haman thought he had it. Haman thought he was going to win. He thought he was underscoring. But how he found out that God was on the side to the Jews and how he brought about salvation in ways that why we wouldn't even ever really thought of. But God knew, God was planning, and you see the sovereignty of God. You just see how God is in control, how God is working things through kings, through governments, through individuals, anybody at any level. God can use and God can work. And that's really what we can learn from that is that we need to trust him. You know, we need to be able to trust God with our lives. And we need to be able to commit ourselves to him, just like Esther. You know, if I perish, I perish, but I'm committed to God, I'm going to do what's right. And this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to do it. And just having that courage to do so. So having the knowledge that God is sovereign is one thing, but actually putting your faith and trust in him accordingly is another thing. Even when we don't fully understand what he's doing or what he's allowing to happen, we need to trust him in that regard. You know, and at the same time, we have to allow God to use us to bring about his will on this earth. You know, just like Esther. Esther was willing and available and, and hey, I'm here, Lord. If you allow me to be in this position, Use me, you know, what do you want me to do, I'll do it. You know, and that should be our our way of life as well. You know, hey, I'm here. This is where I'm at in my position. This is what I have at my disposal. You know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my body? What do you want me to do with my money? What do you want me to do with my time and my assets and my possessions? Your job position that I'm in, the car I'm in, the rank I'm in, you know, my position in the government or my position in this, uh, this company. You know, how can you use me? further your kingdom how can you use me so i can be about your business here we always be praying here we always be seeking the lord um, just like esther where where i'm at what i'm doing god use me uh, for your kingdom and for your glory how can we be about your will on this earth and again don't be afraid to speak the truth in love you know we want people to get saved god wants all to be saved and they're going to be saved by knowing the full truth you know don't be afraid to share the truth with them yes there is a heaven. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God cares for you. Yes, God wants you to be with him. My plan, not God's. And stick with him if you truly can for him. But also warn them. Tell them what's coming if they reject. If they don't turn to Jesus, if they reject Jesus, it is okay to tell them the truth and say, look, there is a time.